Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM, Channel 233. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, more than 10 million Americans are using prescription drugs for non-medical purposes. And joining us today, we have Dr. Jeffrey Bernstein, Medical Director for the Florida Information Control Center in Miami. We'll be discussing prescription drug use, how it's changed over the years, and how it's currently being abused by teens as well as some adults. Welcome, Dr. Bernstein. You've been involved in evaluating and treating adults, adolescents, and children with ingestions of illicit substances for many years. What can you tell us from the historical approach regarding prescription drugs? The turn of the last century, you know, you didn't really need a prescription, and you could become a drug addict by one of many different ways. You could you know, walk into a pharmacy and get something, or you could be prescribed something by your doctor, but you, you didn't have to. Or, you know, at the time, there there was no law that said you had to disclose what was in a, a product. So you could unknowingly buy a product and then, you know, become a drug addict. And And it wasn't really until the early 1900s when you know, some laws were passed which actually required prescription writing and required, you know, doctors and pharmacies to to become more accountable for themselves. In 1906, Congress adopted what they call the Pure Food and Drug Act, and that was an act which said from now on you have to disclose what was inside your patent medicine so that so that everybody knew if it contained morphine or opioids or, you know, some of these products contained up to 40% opioids. So, you know, of course it cured your cough. Of course it made you feel better. You know, and many people became addicted that way. So the government had to come up with a way to start to control the use of some of these products. In 1914, they passed something called the Harrison Narcotic Act. And what that was was essentially a tax act. It taxed pharmacists, physicians, and people who peddled, you know, what we now know as prescription drugs because at the time, you know, there was a state's rights push for states to be able to govern themselves. There was no there was no FDA and there was no DEA back then. And the federal government needed a way to, you know, to control them. So what they did with the Harrison Narcotic Act was they regulated physicians because now physicians had to pay, you know, their tax maybe smaller than the other peddlers. But essentially, they're now licensed because they have to pay for a license to dispense drugs or to write prescriptions. And at the same time, people other than physicians or pharmacists who were caught guilty of selling narcotics were now guilty of tax evasion. And so it was the government's way of finally controlling the traffic of drugs. So this is where kind of prescription writing came from and, and, you know, why physicians were, or pharmacists at the time were really the only ones who were allowed to prescribe. Now, over the years, that has evolved into the system, you know, that we have now. Of course, it wasn't until 1970 when we first had, you know, laws that, you know, what we know is the Controlled Substance Act today, you know, which schedule drugs and put them into different schedules, presumably based on their abuse potential from one to five. Did this do something back then to limit abuse by the regulation by the FDA? Well, it it didn't, it didn't. I'm always fond of saying that we forget the lessons of the past. In 1970, you know, the Controlled Substance Act said, okay, from now on, X drug is uh, class one and Y drug is in class two. And the loophole in the law at that time was, if it wasn't listed in the law, 
and it wasn't specifically put on the schedule, then you couldn't be busted for walking around with that drug because there was no law against it. And so that gave rise to what we refer to as the designer drug period, where people started to design their own drugs. You know, amphetamine, which is not a new drug, it was developed by a German scientist as phenylisopropylamine back in the late 1800s, and methamphetamine followed in, in the 1930s. Originally, amphetamine was put into a schedule, and, well, people said, okay, well, I'll add a methyl group to that amphetamine and make methamphetamine. And then the government caught on and said, you know, okay, from now on this methamphetamine is illegal. And they said, well, I'll just add another carbon and two oxygens and make methylene dioxymethamphetamine or ecstasy. And that hadn't been scheduled yet, and so that was legal temporarily. And then, you know, and, and the list goes on and on. They just made, you know, tons of designer drugs until about 1980 when the second Controlled Substance Act said from now on anything used as a psychoactive substance is is illegal or not illegal but but needs to be controlled. So how did this evolve into what we're seeing today with teenagers in high schools and what trends are you seeing today with kids in high school? Monitoring the Future study from the University of Michigan has gotten a lot of publicity in the past year and has just announced that for the first year the use of street drugs like marijuana, cocaine, you know, non-prescription drugs has gone down among high school age teenagers uh, in 8th, 10th and 12th grade. And and but what they they have shown is that there is an actual increase in prescription drug abuse and diversion. And where are these kids getting these prescription drugs that they're abusing? What's some of the sources and what is law enforcement doing about it? There's a number of ways that you can get a hold of a prescription drug. You know, primarily it's what we refer to as diversion. You could, I mean, you could certainly fake an illness and go into an emergency department and fake an illness that, that requires pain medications. And Shira, you used to work in an emergency department. Uh, so, so you've certainly seen those patients that come in pretending to have t- kidney stones or low back pain or, or some other illness that's very, very difficult to pick up on physical exam. And many of these illnesses, you just kind of have to take the patient's word for it. So you have a certain number of people that will come into emergency departments faking illnesses, or family practitioner's office even, and faking illnesses. You know, it's, it's interesting that there, over the past couple of years, there have been two trends going in different directions. On the one hand, you know, the government and the Department of Health tells us, you know, you need to treat pain. You know, we have to have pain scales now on, in triage in the emergency department on every patient that has pain. We have to measure their pain. We have to treat their pain. We have to treat their pain early, but don't use OxyContin. Or, or don't, don't use methadone or don't use anything strong. So, you know, they're telling us two different things. They're telling us treat everybody's pain, treat it early, treat it aggressively, don't let people stay in pain. And then, you know, on the other hand, they're telling us, you know, don't abuse pain meds. Don't overprescribe pain meds. Don't prescribe them to people that don't need them. And it's, it's a very subjective thing a lot of times. So that's, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind in terms of how, how people would divert drugs. There are also what we call OxyContin mills or pain medication mills that have sprung up. Physicians who advertise that they will help to treat patients with pain and they tend to be very liberal with prescribing pain medications because it's because it's easy money quite frankly and you know you you hear me use oxycontin and that's that's probably uh, about as inappropriate as blaming all acetaminophen overdoses on uh, tylenol it's really it's unfair to blame it on oxycontin 
OxyContin has gotten kind of a bad rap over the past couple of years, even through the media. You you hear people who have been arrested for for getting caught, you know, trafficking drugs, or or even people that have overdosed with drugs like Xanax. And you'll see in the newspaper, you know, the patient was caught with Xanax, an OxyContin-like drug. Now, of course, those two drugs are in completely different classes, but, you know, we we have tended to use the word OxyContin, you know, to describe all, all the pain medications, and, and that's that's inappropriate to do so. I hear you say the primary care doctors are doing their best to treat pain in their practice and prescribing these medications for the parents, and then the children in these homes are taking these medications or they're obtaining them, and then what's the consequences and what's happening in the high schools with these medications? Prescription medications are very attractive. They're attractive because, you know, if you walk around with a tablet of medication in your pocket, it's much less likely that, you know, you're going to get caught with that or you're going to be arrested for that than if you're carrying around a baggie with marijuana. You know, police dogs aren't trained to, to sniff out tablets. And, you know, tablets, they're a fixed dose. A pharmaceutical company has made the dose so you don't have to worry about the problems of quality control that you do with other street medications. They have a very high street value, but, you know, affordable street value per dose, and they're much easier to get. I know people that go to I shouldn't say I know these people, but I've been told by patients that that they go to open houses when they find out that there is an open house real estate-wise, and and they show up, excuse themselves, go into the bathroom, and they go through the medicine cabinet, and they steal steal drugs. So it's very easy to get a hold of. You know, really, (laughs) there are so many new drugs that keep coming out on the market that, you know, it, it provides variety. Jeff, what's a farm party? You know, farm party is kind of a new name for an old product. It's where people basically raid their own medicine cabinets or their parents' medicine cabinets, and they they show up with different drugs. And sometimes, you know, they don't even know what they're taking. used to be back in the 70s, they called them punch bowls. Everybody would bring in a bunch of pills, and they would all throw them into the bowl, and it looked like a punch bowl, uh, like a fruit salad of some sort with, you know, multicolors of drugs. And everybody would reach in, and, you know, you'd be surprised by whatever you got. Of course, that's not just, I mean, I don't have to say, you know, how dangerous that is, obviously. You know, not just in terms of what you're getting and what you're taking, but what it might interact with that you're already taking. So, you know, these are very, very dangerous practices. I've got one last question for you. What's the danger today behind Sudafed? You know, Sudafed, uh, not Sudafed. Ephedra was fairly recently banned having an association with, you know, heart disease and possibly strokes. And it kind of comes on the heels of the phenylpropanolamine ban. Phenylpropanolamine, you know, as toxicologists, we, we have known for years and years that, you know, in it's, it has a very, very narrow therapeutic index. In other words, the difference between the therapeutic dose and the toxic dose was actually very, very small. And when somebody overdosed on it, as little as three times the therapeutic dose was enough to cause people to stroke. And so a, a fairly large study was done a couple of years ago where they looked at young women in the 12-year-old age group and used them as the control and other uh, women who were taking phenylpropanolamine and found that the risk of stroke was actually higher in phenylpropanolamine. Now, if you look at the chemical structure of all of these various amphetamine-like drugs, you know, because that, that's essentially what they are, phenylpropanolamine, Sudafed, ephedra, there, there's a the similar phenylisopropylamine 
structure in there. They all look very, very similar chemically, and it's very easy to manipulate one to the other. And that's essentially what the designer druggists have done to take, for example, over-the-counter nasal decongestant, which you can buy for 12 bucks. You can't, you can't buy them in bulk anymore because that, that has now been banned. And pharmacies will no longer let you buy huge amounts. But you could. it used to be that you could buy you know, just over-the-counter in a pharmacy, $12 worth of nasal decongestant and just a couple of reactions, you know, at home if you knew what you were doing and you could convert that into thousands and thousands of dollars of amphetamine or methamphetamine or even ecstasy. Jeff, thank you. You've given us a lot of information today that can certainly affect the practices of many primary care providers out there. Our guest today has been Dr. Jeffrey Bernstein, Medical Director of the Florida Poison Control Information Center in Miami. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for today's medical professional. There's another great segment coming up. Please stay tuned.